invite you to turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 20. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be on page 14 of the black pew Bible in front of you. Genesis chapter 20. We're going to be in Genesis in just a moment. But the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 7, verse 19, wrote the following. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now maybe you can relate a little bit with the Apostle Paul. And maybe there's a a measure of encouragement that the Apostle Paul is the one who says these things. That there are things that I, I want to do, and those are the things I'm not doing, or don't do, and the things that that I don't want to do, those are the things I seem to end up doing. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know what it's like to to know something is wrong, yet you still find yourself doing that very thing. The struggle is real. And whether it is a a reoccurring sin, uh, a, a repeated sin, or it is a new sin, all sin is fundamentally a dismissal of God, a dismissal of his word, his will, his way. It is a distrust of God. And this is actually what we see this morning in our passage as well. In chapters 12 through 19, chapter 12 beginning the the narrative of Abraham, we find a very clear contrast between two particular people in those chapters, between Abraham and between Lot. Abraham, it is uh, told to us and is shown to us that he is a man of faith, while Lot is a man of the world. And the contrast is certainly intentional. But to say that Abraham was a man of faith is not to indicate that, that Abraham was without fault. We've already noted that as well. We saw it in chapter 12 when he was in Egypt, and we saw it in chapter 16 with Hagar. And we'll see it again here in chapter 20. Here in chapter 20 follows chapters 18 and 19, of course, where Abraham interacts with God. He intercedes for, particularly for Lot and the the righteous in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in chapter 19, we see God righteously judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their sinfulness. So after all of that, we see here again another lapse of Abraham's faith in chapter 20, which recalls to us or reminds us of our own frailty of faith. It reminds us of our our tendency or our proneness to wander and the reality of sin that clings so closely to us. Let's start in verse 1. Seems like a good place to start. Hear it again. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed in Gerar. Uh, The chapter begins here with telling us that Abraham is on the move. From the time that he came back from Egypt, Abraham had been living near Hebron, 
uh, an area that, that they refer to is referred to in the, the text as the Oaks of Mamre. We're not told here why he left this area. There's some that would like to speculate on why. I'm not going to do that this morning because I'm not going to do that this morning. We're not told why he left, but he did leave. And he moved, and, and we understand on a map that he moved south. Do we have that map, Patrick? There it is. Uh, here, it it's, might be hard to see there, but um, he goes south. Hebron is the, the top circle. And he goes south, and he kind of does a loop up, and he comes back to Gerar near that says Gaza. That might, you might know where Gaza is anymore these days. I think everybody knows where Gaza is today. But that's the trajectory, that's the, the route that Abraham may have taken. But he gets there to, to Gerar. And what we find out about this place in chapter 21 is that it is the land of the Philistines. Chapter 21, verse 32. And a quick word on the Philistines is from the ancient Greek word Philistia. Philistia is derived the word Palestine. Heard a thing or two about Palestine lately, have you? This is an ancient book, isn't it? It's an ancient book with contemporary relevant matters. Well, as Abraham journeyed, uh, his concern for his own safety was drawn out again. We remember this back in chapter 12, and now we see it here again. And when Abraham was worried about his safety, he, he rolled out his, his, his old scheme. It's, it's the brother-sister routine that Abraham and Sarah run out. And they did it once before at least, the one that we know of, and they do it here again in verse 2. And Abraham said to Sarah his wife, of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And now we'll remember the last time this happened was in chapter 12 when they used this scheme and it failed there as well. Right? We remember that uh, Pharaoh took uh, Sarah into his harem. Now we, hear, we see it happening just the same way again. I keep using the word scheme here but, but because it, it was a plot. <clears throat> it, it was a plan. And yet really what it was, it was a lie. It was completely uh, intended uh, to be dishonest and to deceive. Uh, we're going to hear Abraham's justification later as he leans on this part of his identity because she was, in fact, his half-sister. But the reason that he called her his sister was not because he wanted to identify with that part of his, uh, tr the truth about him. That's not what he was trying to do. He was trying to avoid something else. He was trying to protect himself. He was trying not to die. Uh, in, in the end, it was a lack of faith. In the end, it was a lack of trust in the Lord. It was, it was again, Abraham taking matters into his own hands and trusting himself and his ideas and his schemes in order to bring about the end that he wanted. Again, this, was first, this first scheme was recorded in chapter 12. And, and we're talking about some maybe 24 years between chapter 12 and chapter 20. And we see now this repeated sin coming back up again. A uh, one that in, in verse 13, look down to verse 13. We'll come back to it, but look at verse 13. And when, this is Abraham talking. When God caused me to wander in my father's house, I said to her. So this is when he was in Ur uh, or before. He says, this is the kindness, talking, he's saying this to Sarah. This is the kindness that you must do to me at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So this was a plan from the beginning. Uh, of their sojourning, that they were going to come up with this scheme, uh, that they would lean into this different identity. 
And it would be easy for us uh, to say, why would they keep on doing this? And number one, it didn't work, right? That, that would be the first part. Uh, it failed the first time. Why are they doing it again? But we also might say, it's dishonest. He's lying. Why, why does he do it again? And we'll see, again, um, Abraham's going to give his reasons. But, but if, if we're honest, we too have repeated the same sin more than once. And you may have repeated the same sin more than once within a shorter span than every 24 years here as for Abraham. We all have sins specific to us to which we are vulnerable or susceptible for, for any number of reasons. My, my temptations, my weaknesses might not be yours, but, but we all have something. We all have something that, that seems to nag us and seems to uh, continue to cling on to us. Uh, it's a sin that, that we haven't uh, learned our lesson from. And now this is not to normalize uh, sin. It's not to, to say that, well, everyone else has sins, so it's, it's no big deal. No, no, sin is a big deal. It is a big deal to God. And one of the reasons our sins reoccur is because we have not dealt with them properly. You see, see when sin is not dealt with properly, we're prone to repeat it. If we have not repented, if, if we have not seen our sin as God sees it, if we have not turned from it, if we have, uh, then we are apt to return to it. Uh, as, a, as the Proverbs would say, as a dog returns to his own vomit. James Montgomery Boyce writes, No sin is over until it is confessed and cleansed by the blood of Christ. And James, John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the offer of forgiveness in Christ is open. It's open to those who come to Christ. But will we bring our sin into the light? Will we confess? Will we repent? Will we turn from it? That's the question. The question isn't if you have sin. The question is how do you deal with your sin? And so maybe even this morning, some of you are coming in here with unrepentant sin. Sin you know of. Sin that you've committed. Sin that you are very well aware of and you have yet to bring it into the light. You've yet to be honest about it. You've yet to see it as God sees it. You've yet to call it what God calls it. Sometimes we like to call sin by different names to, to lessen the, the, the punch. But we, we refuse to call it what God calls it. What do you need to repent of today? Well, at this point, Abraham's deception had uh, placed his own wife in danger again. Now she has been taken. It also placed in danger the promise of Isaac the promise of this son. Now, now his wife is now in a harem uh, with this king. Uh, the promise of Isaac seems in jeopardy. Also in danger is Abimelech himself for taking, unknowingly, taking Sarah into his harem. Uh, we can make choices. That's absolutely true. But we cannot choose the consequences. And yet, here's the amazing part of the story that we'll see. Though Abraham here is faithless, this is a faithless act. Abraham isn't going to God and saying, God, I'm in this area, I'm in this, this uh, foreign place. I'm, I'm kind of concerned they're going to kill me. You know, can, can I, will you help me? 
And that's not what we see him doing. We see him starting to plot and to plan. He's faithless. But even though he was faithless, God remained faithful. It's a really good word for us. And it was a good word for Abraham as well. And we see God's faithfulness come about in the next number of verses. God had made a covenant with Abraham. We looked at that covenant already in recent weeks. And the covenant with Abraham, or the Abrahamic covenant, was unilateral, which means God made the covenant. It wasn't Abraham had to do something and God had to do something. No, God said, I'm going to do this thing. So it was unilateral. It was a one-way covenant, and it was unconditional, meaning even if Abraham wasn't faithful, God would be faithful. That's what the covenant meant. So even though Abraham faltered, he had faltered already and he faltered again here, God would not falter. And in his sovereignty and in his grace, he intervened. He intervened here by coming to Abimelech in a dream. Look at it in verse three. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken for she is a man's wife. Now, in, in the Bible, the biblical times, dreams were a common way of divine communication. We're going to see it a couple more times in the book of Genesis where dreams are used for God to communicate to people. And God communicated here to Abimelech concerning the seriousness of his actions, which put him in danger, put his household in danger of God's judgments. And what was the judgment? It was death. What does he say? Behold, you are a dead man. <laughs> You've taken somebody else's wife into your house and the result of that, the consequence of that is you're going to die. You, you are a dead man. And so Abimelech responds and he, he claims his innocence in, verses, uh, in verse four and five. Now Abimelech had not approached her. That means he had not been intimate with her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent person, innocent people? Will you kill an innocent people? Lord, we didn't do anything. And this sounds similar to what, what Abraham pled with the Lord for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Will you wipe away innocent people in, in the judgment against Sodom? Very similar requests here. Verse five, did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Listen, Lord, they told me they were siblings. I, I, didn't, I didn't know they were married. I didn't, do anything, I didn't do anything wrong. Knowingly, I didn't do anything wrong. Abimelech was a pagan king. He was a pagan king. So the idea of having multiple wives was not a problem for him. But the idea of taking someone else's wife, in this sense, uh, would have been uh, a problem. But, but even uh, he uh, knew uh, knew something ab about some sort of a morality or some sort of an ethic uh, that he wouldn't take Abraham's wife knowingly. And he didn't approach her. He, um, and so he's claiming innocence. And so Abimelech um, responds, his response here demonstrates something about what he, what he thinks about God. Now, it doesn't mean that he was a follower of God. That's not at all what we get here from the text. But it does mean to say that he had some measure of fear of God. That God came to him in a dream and he straightened up, right? He listened. He was like, wait a second. I, I didn't know this, right? He, we see a measure of integrity that he's claiming and that God is going to verify in just a moment. It's an interesting contrast here, isn't it? As Abraham, the man of faith, 
the man in chapter 17 that God said, walk before me and be blameless. Now is in front of um, or in the land of Abimelech. And Abimelech is more blameless than Abraham. Isn't that interesting? When the unbeliever is living a more blameless life than the believer. Sadly, we see that today, though, don't we? It's an interesting contrast. And it's a blemish on the life of Abraham. Well, God responded then to the king in verses 6 and 7. And God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your hearts. Meaning, I know that you didn't know. And it was I who kept you from sinning against her. I'm the one who, who didn't allow you to approach her. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return to the, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Here in this, uh, these two verses, God reveals something about himself. He reveals his sovereignty, he reveals his power, <clears throat> and he reveals his grace. He reveals his sovereignty in that he knew. He knew all about Abimelech. He says to him, I, I knew. I, I know about your integrity. I, I know that you didn't do this on purpose, but it was done. And this is the consequence thereof. God is sovereign. God was sovereign. God is sovereign. He's all-knowing. He, he is in complete control. He was then. He is today. And secondly, we see God's power. God kept Abimelech from sinning. Uh, sinning, what, what Abimelech calls later in verse 9, a great sin, which the great sin would be adultery here. He kept him blameless. And he, in his power, kept Sarah pure. Thirdly, we see grace. He commanded him to return Sarah to avoid punishment, the punishment of death to him and to his household. That's grace. That's God saying, this is the consequence of what you've done, but if you obey me, the, the, the judgment will not fall upon you. God told him that to return his wife and then Abraham would pray for him. And he's called here, Abraham is called here a prophet. And this is the first time we see the word prophet. Abraham was a prophet who, who would intercede for Abimelech and his family. A prophet was a representative of God, an intercessor for the people. In, in this sense, Abraham was a forerunner of other prophets like Moses and like David, and ultimately the true and better Abraham, that is Jesus. For Abimelech to continue in this direction of intermarriage and adultery would bring great consequence. God was not silent and is not silent on marriage. Marriage, according to John, John Stott writes this, uh, marriage is an ordinance of creation. It's an ordinance of creation rather than redemption. These standards apply to the whole human community, not merely to a diminishing religious remnants. John Stott is helping us understand that marriage is rooted in the beginning, in creation. It, it is a creation ordinance, which means it's, it's pre-political. No, no, no government gets in to decide on what marriage is. 
This is a divine ordinance. It is a creation ordinance. It's from the beginning. That, that's very, very important. Because there'll be some who want to say, well, I don't care about that. You know, I live today and I, I, we can believe whatever we want to believe. You can believe whatever you want to believe. That's true, by the way. No one's saying you can't believe what you want to believe. But it doesn't mean that you're right either. Okay? Not all truth is truth, right? But the point is this, is that if it is uh, an ordinance of creation, then that means you are under it whether you believe it or not. That means as part of the creation, of God's creation, you are therefore under that ordinance. That's what God is saying. That's what the Bible is saying. That's what John Stott is pointing us to here. But as we, as a society, as we have lost our biblical authority or the biblical authority of our lives, we've also lost the sanctity, the sacredness, the reverence for the marital union. And when I say, as we have lost the biblical authority of our lives, we societally, society is made up of people. So sometimes when we talk about culture or we talk about people or, or, or these kind of things or, or societies, we kind of, it's them. No, it's us. It's collectively. We don't just need to point to someone out there. They, they, they're, they're the ones who are the problem on this. No, we all have a problem on this. The more and more we disconnect ourselves from the authority of the Bible, the more and more the sanctity of marriage will suffer. And certainly we have seen that happen. Well, Abimelech reacted to this divine communication in fearful obedience and with a convicting rebuke of Abraham. And we see that in verses 8 through 13 as Abimelech confronts Abraham Look at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servant, servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid, as you and I would be afraid as well. Verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Here, the prophet of God, as God calls him, is being confronted and rebuked by a pagan king. This is embarrassing. This is embarrassing for Abraham, as it should be. And it's damaging to Abraham and to his testimony as a man of faith. Abimelech was right to confront Abraham. Abraham was in the wrong. His actions put Abimelech in danger and his household into danger. And he asked these series of questions, these three questions. What have you done to us? Um, how, how have I sinned that, that you would do this to me? And what did you see that you did this thing, uh, that you did this thing? So, so after this series of questions, Abraham then answers in verses 12 and following. And Abraham said, I did it because. Now here's the explanation. I thought, quote, there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. So Abraham had a preconceived idea about the people in this area, in Gerar. He thought, they don't fear God. They're going to do what the Egyptians would have done. They're going to kill me and take Sarah. So I'm going to try to prevent that. 
by calling her my sister, by referring to me as her brother. Verse 12, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. She's my half-sister. She became my wife. So it's not untrue that she was his sister. Verse 13, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, from Ur of the Chaldees, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So that, that's Abraham's reasoning. That's his thought process. He thought this, therefore he feared that, and then he did the following. He lied. This is the, basically the same logic that he used in Egypt. But really, really what's happening is that Abraham is afraid for his life. Abraham is in self-protective mode. Warren Wearsby writes, The fear of man and faith in God cannot dwell in the same heart. The fear of man and faith in God cannot dwell in the same heart. Here Abraham's sin, his fear and his lying put many others in danger. Put his wife in danger, his future son, Abimelech, and his household. And listen, this is a really good reminder for us. Sin not only damages us, but it can damage others as well. That you and I do not sin in isolation. Sometimes we think our private sins don't affect anyone else but, but ourselves. That's untrue. If you believe that, there is someone who wants you to believe that. It's the someone who wants you to continue in this pattern or this habit of sin. My sin, your sin, affects others. And at times, the others, we don't even know. Abraham no, had no idea. How could he have known what was happening in Abimelech's household? And we'll see what that was in just a few moments. Your sin affects other people. Husband, your sin affects your wife. Wife, your sin affects your husband. Parent, your sin affects your child. Children, your sin affects your parents. Employer, your sin affects your employees. Employee, your sin affects your employer. We can go through all the relationships. You can't control the extent to which your sin affects other people. It affects people that you don't even know. There's a story of Jonah getting on a ship, fleeing God, fleeing the presence of God. You remember this story? And a storm comes up. And what happens? That the ship almost breaks up. And the, 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 the sailors are afraid that they're going to die. These sailors, they were not God-following people. But, but something was going on. Their life was in danger because of Jonah. Jonah's sin put other people's lives in danger. Don't minimize your sin. Abraham tried to justify his by saying that Sarah was his half-sister. And though true, the truth was meant to deceive. It was meant to mislead. F.B. Meyer says, A lie consists in the motive quite as much as in the actual words. A lie consists in the motive quite as much as in the actual words. Which means you can say something that is technically true, and yet what you're really doing is you're deceiving. And we've all done it. Abraham does it here, and we can see it. In this case, the half-truth meant an intentional lie. Another shot at Abraham's character, another damaging aspect of his past. 
Abraham's besetting sin here was self-trust. It was a distrust of God. It was taking matters into his own hands and it overcame him here again in chapter 20. And we are to be warned. You and I are to be warned here. We may see it very easily in Abraham's life. We may see it very easily in other people's lives, but you and I ought to watch out for our own temptations. In, in Galatians chapter six, verse one, it says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Yes, and then what? Keep watch for yourself, lest you too be tempted. The dangers are real. It's not just to the person you see who has, has a sin issue. You and I both are in the crosshairs of temptation as well. Well, the story continues and we see vindication in the last uh, five verses. Verse 15, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a, a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. So Abimelech obeyed the word of the Lord. He obeyed the command of God and returned Sarah to Abraham. And with that, he, he gives gifts. He gives gifts of, of animals and of money and an invitation to dwell in the land. And all of this is to vindicate or to validate Sarah, Sarah's purity and what God had told Abimelech about her. Verses 17 and 18, we find that Abraham prays and God healed just as he said he would. Look at verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female servants so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The consequence came to Abimelech and his household that they were not able to bear children, which indicates to us that this was not a, a, a few days incident. That when Abraham went to Gerar, when he lied about his sister, when uh, Sarah was taken and when the dream came, we're not talking about a couple hours. We're not talking about a couple of days. We're talking about a period long enough that it would be obvious that there are no more babies being born, that there's a problem. So sometimes when we read the Bible, the stories go like this, and we don't feel the weight of how long these things actually took. We don't recognize that the years that, that, that Job dealt with his suffering. We don't recognize the two years that Joseph was in prison. We don't recognize the years that, that David uh, was living in sin, unwilling to repent of what he did with Bathsheba. Sometimes the Bible moves so quickly, we don't feel the weight of it. There was a, a, a weight, there was sin, there was consequence that was happening in Abimelech's household for which God was judging him because namely because of what Abimelech did on account of Abraham's lie. The point is that sin brings consequences. It does. But here's the good news. God gives grace. And we see it throughout this passage, don't we? That God, gave, God actually gave grace to Abimelech. Abimelech, a pagan king, God gave him grace. God could have said, no, 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 you're with, you're with somebody else's wife, boom. No, that's not what God did. God came to him. God revealed to him his sin and led him into doing the right thing. You know what? God's done that to you and me too. God has come to us. He's come to us in the Bible. He has come to us in his own son to say, you are 
away from me. You're an enemy of God. Obey me. Return to me. There's grace. There's grace for Abimelech. There was grace for his household. There was grace for Sarah. There was grace to Abraham. Clearly, the portrayal of Abraham here is to show us that God did not choose Abraham because he was the most spiritual guy in the world. God didn't choose Abraham because he was like, Abraham's a great man. I'll build a, I'll build a great community off of Abraham. No, God sovereignly, in his wisdom, chose him. Abraham was full of, of problems, full of faithlessness, and yet God chose him. And it shows to us that God can, can move and use anybody not because of our gifts, but in spite of our sin, in spite of our failures, God chose to use Abraham and he chooses to use us as well. Writer Erwin Lutzer has said this, there is more grace in God's heart than sin in your past. <clears throat> There's more grace in God's heart than sin in your past. There's two pitfalls when we talk about grace and sin. One is that we minimize sin. Uh, one of the, the pitfalls is that we don't see the seriousness of our sin. Uh, we, we minimize or we presume that sin really isn't that big of a deal. It, it, it's under the blood, right? It's under the grace. God, God's forgiven me, justified. We give, we give excuses. And yet sin is rebellion. You know that? Sin is rebellion against God. It's treason against the king of the world. And every time we, we, we sin, we say to God, I want something that you're not giving me. I want something else. When we talk about sin and grace, one of the things that we sometimes do is minimize the sin. We ought not to do that. Sin is serious. But on the other hand, sometimes we conclude that our sin is so great, it could never be forgiven. So some people want to minimize their sin. It's not really that big of a deal. Some people want to say, it's such a big deal that I'll never be forgiven of it. How could, I, how could God ever forgive me? Look at what I've done. Maybe God can forgive that sin or that person, but not me. And in this way, though we think we're somehow being humble about that, what we're actually doing is we're elevating our sin and we're minimizing God's grace. We're actually saying, God, your grace isn't big enough to cover me. Your grace isn't enough. There needs to be something even greater than that. And in this way, we minimize God's great grace. God's power and his ability may seem impossible to us. Impossible to pardon a sinner like me. But to say that is to minimize. It's to dismiss or to reject God's grace. But the truth is that our sin is great. That's true. But God's grace is greater still. We are sinners. We are enemies of God. The unrighteousness, we are unrighteousness and we are unworthy. That's bad news. But Here's the good news. That's exactly who Jesus came for. Jesus didn't come for the righteous as if there were. He came for the unrighteous. He didn't come for the one who was well. He came for the one who was sick. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's sinners. And that's what makes grace grace. It's for the undeserved. If we could deserve it, it would cease to be grace. It would be earned. And grace cannot be earned. In Abraham's story, this is not where it ends, by the way. The story continues, but also the life of Abraham continues. And he isn't only remembered for his failures. And in fact, in the, in the great chapter of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, there's no mention of Abraham's failure of lying to Abimelech or lying to Pharaoh. 
When God looks at Abraham's life, he remembers and recalls the evidences of his faith. Because once our sin is dealt with before God, it is covered and it is remembered no more. Meaning that God moves on, moves forward, which means we should move forward. If God has forgiven us, then we should move forward as well. But how do we do that? How do we move forward? You might say, that sounds great. Well, following this great chapter of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 is Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews chapter 12, after talking about all this faith talk, all these men and women of faith, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these faithful people, let us, what? Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Repeated sin. Reoccurring sin. That stuff that you can't shake or you don't think you can shake. Let us lay aside all of that and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We can walk by faith. We can be men and women of faith as we what? As we deal with our sin. As we get our sin into the light. As we follow God, running the race with endurance. How? By looking unto Jesus. And that's where our problems come, don't they? When we stop looking at Jesus. You can think about your own life. You think about the last time you sinned and ask yourself, were my eyes on Jesus? Was I walking with Jesus? Was I loving Jesus when I did that? And of course, the answer is always no. In Matthew chapter 14, there's a story of, of uh, Jesus and the disciples. They're on the Sea of Galilee, which is really a lake. A storm comes up. They're in the middle of the lake. And Jesus comes walking on the water. Remember this story? And the people are, the disciples are scared. And they want to make sure it's Jesus. And Jesus says that it's him. And then Peter says, Jesus, Call, call me to come to you. Like Jesus is walking in the water and Peter's like, let's do it. And Jesus says, come on. And so Peter gets out of the boat. You remember this story. And he starts walking on the water. Like this is the crazy story. You think Jonah getting swallowed by the world, a whale is crazy? Like this guy's walking on water. Like the Bible is wild and it's true. Right? He's walking on the water. And then the text says that Peter saw the wind. It's actually what the text says. He saw the wind means that he saw what the wind was doing, right? Blowing the waves. Meaning he stopped looking at Jesus. And he started to sink, right? And we know that he calls out to Jesus. Jesus grabs him and they go back to the boat. This is a great illustration. You've heard the illustration before, but it is a great illustration for what we're talking about this morning. Sinclair Ferguson says that the key to the whole thing of life is to fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the key. Abraham's eyes weren't on the Lord, and so he took matters into our, his own hands. You think about the last time you sinned, the last time you distrusted God, the last time you, you tried to do it on your own. You and I both know what you're doing is you're not looking to Jesus. You're not looking to the one who actually can give you the very thing you want. You're looking to do it on your own. That's the nature of sin. That's the nature of unfaith. That's the nature of what Abraham did here in chapter 20 in the temptation that you and I face even yet this week. 
to take matters into our own hands, to do it on our own. And the Bible invites us to say, you want to run the race? You want to run it faithfully? Look to Jesus. He's the author and he's the perfecter of your faith. May God help us. Lord, we pray now that you would help us to walk, to run the race that you've set before us, looking unto Jesus, recognizing the amazing grace that we've been given and to living out, living it out, living because of it, living faithfully by it. And we'll ask for your help today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.